Hello, and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration and border-related issues. I'm Deanna Okin-Natchoff, and on today's episode, Steve and I speak with another recently retired immigration lawyer, Dennis McRae. Dennis co-founded the firm that I now co-own with my three partners and run in downtown Vancouver. Dennis talks about his start in the immigration field in the early 1970s, describing the very different practice environment at that time and covering a few of the many highlights from his nearly 50 years in practice. Dennis began practicing immigration at a time where there really was no such thing as a full-time immigration practice, and the CBA immigration law section didn't even exist. He co-founded that many years later. As he describes, in the early days of his career, immigration applications could be made face-to-face with decision-makers and decided on the spot, and I'm not just talking about point-of-entry applications. He speaks of the many transformative changes that brought us to the very at-length manner in which we interface with the department at present, through tools like Express Entry and the IRCC web form, no longer armed with phone numbers or email addresses of visa posts or inland decision-makers. He offers insight into such issues as how to manage a work-life balance, how to manage a diverse immigration practice, how to mentor new lawyers, the criticality of a good reputation, and the importance of collegiality and out-of-the-box thinking in an immigration practice. In, in an immigration practice. The episode, which is still our longest to date, had to be ended far before Steve and I were fully done. As a former CBA founding chair of the immigration section, Dennis, I mean, uh, he did that nationally as well as provincially. Uh, He was also a prolific public speaker and a feisty litigator, so his reputation and he himself will be known to many of our listeners. But even for those new to the practice, this is an opportunity to learn from one of the greats in the immigration bar. We just hope you will enjoy the discussion and the catch-up session as much as we did. If you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you watch your podcasts. You can also find Steve's contact information on his firm's website. That's Larley Rosenberg's website. And their website is www.larley.com. Or on my website, I'm at uh, www.mccrealaw.ca. Again, enjoy the episode. Dennis, I'm remembering the story you used to tell about like when you could go in with your client to an office and make your work permit application in person. Did I make that up? No, not at all. So when I started, um, I think it starts with the fact that that in those days, at the beginning, immigration officials really believed they had absolute power and they could make whatever decision they wanted. And you had a whole bunch of immigration officers who had been retired military people because they got um, uh, preference in hiring in the civil service. Um, So the veterans. So old Mr. Wilson in New Westminster, for example, who's the first one I came across. um, I was was doing the, I was working for the uh, legal aid societies that then was uh, in New Westminster and going down through the cells and doing bail hearings and that sort of thing. And I was walking down to the end of the cells and Mr. Wilson passed me. He said, where are you going? So I'm going, I'm going down to the, um, the cell to speak to the guy down there. And he said, why are you going to see him? And I said, well, he's on an immigration hold. I want to tell him his rights. 
And he said, it's an immigration hold. He has no rights. <laughs> <laughs> and they believed it. <laughs> okay. So we uh, said, it was decided that we'd start to sort of create some rights for immigration officials. Oh my goodness. But, but he, he was the immigration officer there. And I remember going into his office um, with clients on entrepreneur cases and that sort of thing. And then 1550 Alberni Street was the immigration office. And you could bring your clients in um, and have meetings with immigration officials that have their papers on the desk. And you could, you know, get some things done. Um, and eventually they got away from those personal things. And, and there were lots of immigration lawyers who would go into visa officers, uh, visa offices around the world and discuss cases um, and often buy the officer lunch or something. <laughs> we sort of uh, prompted them to put an end to that. When wow. did that all start to come to an end? Oh, I think it was a long process, but uh, um, certainly by, you know, 85, 90, it was, they really cut back on access. In those days, we knew who the directors were and managers, and you could call them or maybe even, even have a meeting with the director about a, a problematic case. Uh, maybe start- Dennis, just tell us like, when did you start practicing immigration law and tell what? us like what the landscape of the immigration bar was at that time? Like, was there a cohesive cogent bar where people practicing immigration? Like, just give us a bit of a sense of the lay of the land at that point. So I started in 1974 out in the US I was working for the legal aid office. And at that time, I think I didn't know anybody doing immigration law there. Don Rosenblum was doing some in Vancouver. And uh, then there was John Taylor, the infamous John Taylor, who had really soured the relationship of lawyers and and, uh, immigration officials. Uh, I understand he had a habit of walking into immigration officers and taking papers off their desk and that sort of thing. Um, And uh, so when I started really practicing more immigration laws, when I joined Don and I formed a practice down in Gastown. Was uh, there such a thing as being an immigration lawyer? Did anybody... There was no bar. There may be four five lawyers at the most, old Dr. Pandya, for example, would do some immigration. Um, and so we really started it and, and no organized CBA section. Um, How did so, you get into it? Like, was it something that interested you going into law school? Well, I, I took over the immigration side of the practice from Dawn. Uh, yeah. Rose, no, they, they had no immigration courses in law school when I went through it just wasn't an area of law. The whole of the body of law was contained in a book called Scott on Immigration. Yeah. So Janet Scott had written that book, and it's about oh half an inch thick. It contained all the law, all the regulations, all the cases. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. Um, Crazy. And uh, so it, it was over the course of time that, that a few more lawyers started to join in. They started to expand the number of immigrants coming in. Um, and some of us were doing some, but again, a very less than a dozen uh, when we started the CBA BC branch. 
which I think was in 91. Um, and so I was the founding uh, chairman of that uh, section. And then eventually worked my way up through the, the uh, national section as well. So 1974, so would the bulk of the practice then have been refugee work kind of around, and maybe I'm getting my years wrong, the Vietnamese uh, boat people movement, or was it the start of, because I think the point system comes in, what, in like the end of the 60s, early 70s. Like, what was your practice in immigration? 78 was the the new immigration act. Yeah. Um, As a result of the green paper. Uh, where they were doing some selection, but my practice was a lot of it was the enforcement stuff. Yeah. Um, so having a, uh, some criminal law background and a civil litigation background helped there. Um, and the the appe- immigration appeal board, uh, in those days, they would hold hearings with three members. Yeah. So that was always much better because you could get up on your feet and sort of know who you were talking to and try to convince one or two or three. Um, And uh, David Anderson always seemed to be on the descent when I was winning. (laughs) (laughs) But But it was mostly like as a product of your being in the criminal um, the criminal yes. law world where people yeah. in lockup, as you mentioned, might have also they were they were non-status persons in Canada or people who were not citizens at the very least. And so mm-hmm. just dealing with the intersection between those two areas, that yeah. type of. It's because CBSA and uh, CIC were all one at the time. Right, of course. So enforcement and, and uh, application approval, you're dealing with often the same people. Mm. And that that was, uh, and my practice sort of developed uh, in terms of people coming in. There were some early entrepreneurs. Um, there were some uh, just family class, but often those would uh, sort of result in some interesting cases dealing with medical inadmissibility or criminal mm. inadmissibility. And so you'd end up in the uh, appeal division. Right. So at what point would you say that you had like your practice was exclusively immigration? At what point? That was 1991, you said? Yeah. Yeah. So from 74 to 91, I did a mixture of things. Uh, I'd done criminal, I'd done all the defense work up in Bella Bella, Bella Coola, and the flying court circuit, some personal injury, um, some extradition. And by 91, it was almost exclusively immigration. And your practice also kind of like, I think you became, we get asked a lot um, about whether it's possible for someone to build a career where they have both a corporate immigration law practice as well as enforcement, be it refugee or IRB like appeals or federal court. And I think throughout your practice, or at least since 1991, you did maintain that balance, at least from what I could see on the outside. Yes. Yeah. You could do both. Um, And um, that made it interesting. And it also helped you know the law better so you could represent clients better. Yeah. Do you think it's still feasible to do both? Because I think people get different, like young lawyers get different recommendations as to whether they should 
hyper specialize within immigration on refugee or business, or whether take all sorts of immigration um, and try to be broader in that way? I guess the economic constraints are, are such that people have to do more of the paid work. Yeah. Legal aid doesn't pay much in the way of immigration anymore. Um, so I think you could do a broad base. I don't think you need to do exclusively, you know, work permits, you know, from country X as your whole yeah. practice. Um, although that's probably more lucrative to do that, but it probably is more mind stifling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you, you know, you yeah. get somebody who might be interested in that and want to limit their practice that way. But I think you're you're spot on that it's definitely more lucrative. You can work off of much more precedented materials, you know, uh, you can develop a real machinery behind doing that type of work, which is more challenging to do in an enforcement litigation style practice. Yeah, yes. And, and now the, the because lawyers are doing a high volume of work, it's computer generated precedents and that sort of thing. Remember when we were doing this, it had everything had to be typed, you know, yeah. on form. And it just took longer to do any application. By secretarial or paralegal staff or by the lawyer, um, you just couldn't grind out 50 work permits in a day. Mm -hmm. It's also a little bit about kind of what the market will bear, like in terms of what a person expects to pay in terms of a particular type mm -hmm. of service. And um, also just in terms of maintaining the quality that you're going to be happy with. You know, you could, um, you know, to use an expression, you could like bang out litigation files, but not at the kind of quality that you could if you were trying to do, you know, a precedented work permit type practice, you know, it does take a much greater investment, uh, well, not a greater investment of time, but it does take a significant investment of time. And it's, it's very hard to go that way. But at the same time, you're still working against a competitive market where there are consultants in the field, there are immigration lawyers offering, you know, a very wide range of of fees and so um, trying to handle the business side of the immigration practice as well as just the the actual practice management component is it that's adds probably where I wasn't very good in terms of setting up the practice in order to be a revenue generator I was doing it because I loved practicing law you tell me that now I just bought your firm Dennis <laughs> <laughs> five years ago I should have figured it all out by now but <laughs> And it turned out to be profitable. Yes, uh, of course. But it, that wasn't the focus of my practice. It, it is for, for sure. some people, but it wasn't my focus at the time. And it, it sort of developed over the course of time without any particular plan. Um, it just, I was working with great people and it was enjoyable and they were doing the work yeah. that was good for them. And that's how it ended up. Did you find like when we talk about the change in how you used to be able to like interact with visa officers one-on-one. -on -one. Um, did you find that the practice got more fun, less fun as you went on? Like if you looked at here was the golden age of practicing immigration. Mm, good question, Is there a golden Steve. age? Yeah. Right. No, definitely it was less fun when you're only interfacing with either a person by electronic means or 
probably not even a person. A lot of these numbers are generated by computers in mm-hmm. terms of selection of files. No, that and that's not fun for me because uh, I wasn't brought up in the computer age. And I remember telling my <laughs> wife that oh, I'll never get it. <laughs> yeah how did that hold up <laughs> yeah a, definitely um it, yeah it's become like and that's part of what i enjoy about like federal court irb even interacting with cbsa and esdc is there's like people who you're interacting with whereas ircc really is just you don't even email them anymore it's a web no. form that's right um, yeah i remember going and sitting down in the minister's office in ottawa talking about a case you know the yeah. There was a compassionate argument to be made, but we wanted to send some poor guy that had come to Canada at age six months or something back to England where he was going to die if he went there. Well, so. <laughs> yeah. And I was I a bit that... those days too. So I, so when he did get deported back to England and he died, I sent her a picture to remind her. <laughs> did you get yeah. a response? No. (laughs) (laughs) Wisely, she didn't reply. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, you've made a very interesting point, though, about, you know, when 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 young lawyers ask the question, like, is it viable to do such and such a thing? Mm -hmm. I think that the the point that you made, Dennis, is that um, the question needs to be asked, like, what is your primary mandate in going into this? I mean, if it's to be highly profitable, it's one thing. If it's to um, to have a lot of client interaction, that's a second thing, you know. And so um, I guess my question for you is, what would you say is the, the characteristic of being in immigration that was the thing that kept you driven in that area of law for so many years? There's a great variety uh, in the practice. That's mm, uh, totally true. Which is, you know, and and every time you deal with a client, there's usually some other issue that comes up that they might be interested in and in, in addressing. Um, the great thing about the immigration practice as compared to some other practices is almost all your clients go away happy. Mm-hmm. Um, huh, that's really, such a really, true point. We have really created something for them and their families um, and generations. Yeah, it's definitely different from being in a family law practice where everyone yes. goes away sad. Every yeah, no, I was talking with the commercial litigator over the weekend about how in immigration, and I think it's probably comparable to criminal defense and maybe tax law, where the other side is the state. And yeah, it can be a huge, like, faceless bureaucracy. But you're generally interacting with, on the other side, people who aren't these type A lawyers motivated by a billable hour practice of, you know, trying to drive up the other side's fees while keeping their own fees Mm. low, but also high. And it just, I think it creates a very interesting, yeah, you're not playing those games. And I think it's one of the, uh, you know, it's it's part of what makes it the best kept secret in laws. I often describe it. (laughs) I would have to say too, like, I mean, I think I agree with Dennis that um, more often than not, you are successful in the work that you've done if you've done a good job about it. And I guess um, some people would say that that's not the case if they're doing 
um, like some of the lawyers get really deep into the hardest types of cases don't have the same success rate. And that doesn't mean they're not still doing a really important area of practice. But I think even if you deliver a negative outcome to a client, but you have helped them navigate a very difficult, stressful process in a compassionate way, I feel like there is still like a real value add, you know, in terms of the experience that you've had working with that client and making them feel slightly less lost and slightly less overwhelmed by the process, there is still like a positive connection. You know, you don't tend to hear people talking about their tax lawyer, like, oh my God, that was such an amazing journey we took together, you know, but I feel like there is the, the ability with your immigration lawyer to like, even if you're, you know, you make like the, the case that you described, Dennis, even if he, the, the person does get removed and doesn't survive, you know, like the bonds that you've developed with that spouse or that, you know, like um, uh, there's like real connections to be made. Exactly. And, and you know, some of these bigger cases, uh, you get so involved in the person and their community and whether it's successful or not, at the end of the day, most of them are pretty appreciative of the fact that you, you were standing there next to them fighting the state on their behalf and they got a decent hearing or whatever. Um, and often even after uh, not the most successful case, there's often a way back around it. You know, you've dealt with that numerous times where you might not be successful on a, on a family case, but uh, lo and behold, a couple of years later, they're back in Canada on an H and C. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's, and it's also because they can see kind of how crazy the system can work, and it's strict adherence yeah. to like what national occupation classification <laughs> is, or whether or not a marriage was you know, is genuine or not, has act, asked through the interview questions of someone who's met, met them five minutes ago. Yeah. Um, and they can see just how, you know, crazy that is. Did you have a particular type of case that you enjoyed the most, like IAD <laughs> appeal or rehab? Generally, I like the IAD. I thought for the most part, clients got a fair shake. They got yeah. to express their, their views. Uh, and tell their story. And for the most part, the decisions were pretty favorable. Um, especially when they had three members and when they went to single members, still, I think that the IED did a pretty good job. Um, and there were relatively few appeals from the IED, whereas refugee work seems to be flooding the federal court with appeals, yeah. uh, which tells you something about quality of the initial decision or maybe the desperation of people to stay or funding the legal aid provides. Um, and you would see very different rates of uh, uh, refugee appeals in Ontario where they tended to fund appeals much more generously than they did in BC. Yeah. It's, but, um, yeah. The favorite, would... oh, go ahead. The cases were some of the bigger ones. Um, a couple of war crimes cases, for example, uh, where you really get deeply involved in the history of the event. Um, and there was one where I did a, a second world war crimes case. Um, and 
it was fascinating because it was conducted over the course of quite a long time. Um, unusually, we took commission evidence because the uh, witnesses were too old uh, to come to Canada to give evidence. Yeah. And we took the whole court to Latvia and held court in Latvia to listen to these witnesses. So the judge, the, the court clerk, the court usher, RCMP officers, uh, interpreters, uh, uh, three prosecutors, myself, my client, uh, all went off to, to Latvia to hold court there. And I got to go and visit these people in their homes, to interview them, uh, see the circumstances, and it was fascinating. Um, and fortunately, very successful at the end of it. Um, the one thing that did disappoint me was the federal government didn't care about the result and that they had no case whatsoever. As it turned out, every one of their witnesses confirmed my client's story, mm. uh, that he was not involved. Um, and they didn't want to pull the plug on it because they were getting, getting good press. And I thought that was sad. Um, but other than that, it turned out to be a really fortunate event. And interestingly enough, when I started the case, there was no ability to get costs. Um, and halfway through, the rules changed. And at the end of the day, I got costs and solicitor own clients. Uh. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I was reading, I'd mentioned it on a previous podcast, Preet Bahara's book. And he talks about the need on when you're on the prosecution side to recognize that, A, once the investigation and prosecution gets going, there's like all of a sudden resources being directed and this almost expectation to get a guilty result. And you have to recognize when the administration of justice like demands that the prosecutor realize, okay, I need to put my, take my feet off the uh, gas. Yeah. The, another topic that's arisen a lot lately, and especially in the context of COVID where I feel like like, I don't know about you, Deanna, but I don't think I've taken a proper holiday since COVID started is that, and especially over a 45 or 44 year practice, the fact that it's a marathon and not a sprint, like what, uh, like were there, and you must have seen over that time, people coming and going, people burning out, what, like what, what strategies did you adopt to kind of keep going and running both a big immigration practice, a firm managing people over you know several decades? This is such a good question for Dennis because I've got to say that like I still look to Dennis as like a leader in that kind of uh, in that realm, and sometimes I try and channel him when I'm getting overwhelmed. <laughs> well, and I'm going to then throw in my own story about it, yeah. just like before even like one of the first things I learned. So there's two stories I'll quickly share about Dennis. One, the, one of the first things I learned about him and which I always asked him about and found fascinating was I think that when did you start? When you were in your mid fifties, you joined the auxiliary coast guard and would get called out on, like you could get called out in the middle of the night to go save lives, which is like such an interesting midlife volunteer switch, I guess, to, for yeah. lack of better term to describe it. And the other was, I think that... Um, at a CBA conference, someone passed out or had a heart attack and you like leapt up and took over the scene in terms of making sure they were in the right position and this and that. So it seems like you were always able to have other interests or 
skill set developments in addition to running this busy practice? Like, is it just that you didn't sleep or is there different strategies <laughs> that you like adopted? No. I always slept well. It was like in, in law school, I always got a good night's sleep before the exam. Yeah. <laughs> One of those probably really annoyed other people. But um, some, well, they talk about life work balance, but yeah, I've always been able to enjoy uh, life outside of the practice, but I really enjoyed it. I, I think the key is I, one, I enjoy the practice, uh, and two, then keep some balance. But, um, so was it, you like made yourself set aside time each day or each week for something non-work related? It was never deliberate like that. It was just, that's just the way I conducted my life. If I went home and I played tennis or went for a run or whatever it might be, um, one thing that I sort of regret not doing more of in this, um, at one point I took a sabbatical. Um, I hired a, uh, a lawyer to sort of look after my practice while I went away for three months to go to France and or four months, I guess. And that's something that I think I should have con- done more often. Mm. You know, every 10 years or something, take a sabbatical. Oh my God, that's so smart. Yeah, 100%. I think I'm warming up for a sabbatical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's totally right. But the thing about Dennis that always like strikes me is that like, um, it's not something that like, um, you know, that it's like, oh, I'm going to run. Like we have this sort of notion that work-life balance is about things you put into your life to kind of distract you. But he actually just has this ability to like, Um, like I would often go into his office when I was like fretting about a particular case and I'm like, okay, let me talk this through with you. And I think that one, the, to me, the key was always that like, okay, so here's what, what our job is. Here's what I know. Here's what skills I have. Here's what I can do. And in the end of the day, like, it's kind of out of my hands. Like I can only do what I can do. And beyond that, like, I just have to leave it to the system to kind of run. And I don't know about you, Dennis, but I feel like that was always the key to how, like, then it's not about you're going to go home and force yourself onto a bike or force yourself, you know, to go do a run. It's just like, he's actually left it mentally. Like he's done his thing. He's done it to the best of his ability. And then he goes into a, you know, he goes home and it's, it's, he left the work at the office. Yeah, that's right. So Uh, is that like you would avoid working from home in the evenings? Oh no, I'd work from home on the weekends or on the weekends, but it wasn't totally all consuming. Yeah. Um, Kind of like, cause he thought it was fun, right? Like he was like, oh, I got some more things. I got some stuff to do. I just, I just never got that sense of like the way that we always have like stress piping off of us. I don't think I remember ever seeing Dennis like wicked stressed where he was like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you just held it in, Dennis, but I just don't remember ever right. witnessing that. I don't think I, I was. I, one, my, the type of my practice wasn't so much generated to how many work permits I can get out. You know, so, you know. For oh, but your cases were about removals and avoiding yeah. removals, which would most, for most people, be the most stressful kind where there were very severe consequences of not winning. Right. But you just never took that on as being like your thing to fix. You could do no. your bit and do what you knew and you did it, you did it exactly. well. Once you've done your job, you've done it. Yeah. That's it. Um, but don't get wrapped up in increasing the volume of what you're generating every day because that's the, you know, a, a squirrel in a cage. 
you'll never catch up. Yeah, that's uh, something like it, uh, like because I remember telling Peter Edelman that like the types of files that he took on seemed very stressful, and I like was asking how he was able to manage it, and he said, "Yeah, kind of similar to what you're saying, Dennis. Like to him, the high volume work permit practice would be more stressful because in some of the situations there, you're viewed more." as just almost like a travel agent add-on like form provider whereas in the refugee removal context the state like they're already familiar in dealing with the state and they get it and it makes it less stressful because you're kind of all in it together yes i think it's also something about like you can really empathize with somebody's problem and you can really um want to do everything in your power to mitigate their concerns but it's not your problem and you're not doing them a service by making it your personal stress and not sleeping at night you're actually doing them a disservice so you just kind of like come at it like I have these skills and I have this insight that I can bestow like not to sound you know patronizing but like that I can offer but at the same time like I'm not going to steal your anxiety because that's like, I'm not the one who's going to be removed. I am able to like speak from this place of like calm and privilege in a way and just like offer you the insight that I can and try and help you. And that's the position of the lawyer doing the actual cases, but I was also running a business. And fortunately I had the good sense to hire people like you so I didn't have to worry about managing you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think the way that the management piece also is that um, having, like, you always had such great enthusiasm about what you were doing. And, like, there was never a moment, like, no matter how busy you were, that I couldn't just walk into your office and be like, okay, I want to chat about this. And, like, that little glint would show up in your eye, like, okay, tell me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And so I think that that like mixed with the, like managing personal anxiety and personal responsibility, I think those two blend well, where mentorship was truly like, okay, we have two minds, we have this problem, let's see what we can do and dig in and, you know, um, and figure out what we can do to creatively strategize around this with all the skills and knowledge that we have together. And so, yeah, I mean, it meant that I think you always uh, throughout your career attracted people that had that same passion for the area. And uh, I know you've talked a lot about um, the many lawyers that, that you worked with and collaborated with over the years. And you've always said that, um, that you felt really um, happy with um, some of those relationships that you were able to. It, it, I had really good people for the vast majority. And it's amazing that those people also carried on a, a real sense of what they should be doing in law. And, and so many of them became executives of Canadian Bar in BC and nationally. Um, and I guess they carried on that uh, concept of contributing back to the, the legal community mm. and the development of law. That's why your name is still on the door, actually. So. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's the tradition. Yeah. No, it, it's, uh, that, would, that was really uh, very um, uh, nice to see that, <laughs> that the name had some value to carry on. And, uh, and carry yeah. On well, people talked about it as being, you know, goodwill, and this is going to bring in more cases. But I think for, for the three of us who bought the firm from Dennis, it was more just about like this 
mental space, like that it was about like this real enthusiasm and passion for the law and that like about the relationships we develop with one another and with the employees and with the clients and all of that sort of thing. And that was sort of like, that's the brand. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's interesting, you know, when I started practice, you weren't allowed, lawyers were not allowed to advertise. Mm-hmm. And so it was all word of mouth, your reputation. And mm. uh, fortunately, I guess I developed a good enough reputation that I got quite a few referrals from immigration officers and CBSA and police, and, um, which I took as a compliment. But. I think that's a very key aspect that a lot Me of too. people starting out now miss, which is that, especially in an era, well, especially now with COVID, where you can't really see people face to face, but excluding this unique time period is there's a tendency to view the practice of law as like in front of a screen and on social media. And I feel like a lot of like the best, I mean, I agree with like Dennis, the best marketing is good people who refer you work, who almost do your marketing for you. Uh And those are developed through basically becoming friends with people and like genuine mutual respect back and forth, not, um, not like cheesy networking, you know, like I think everyone's familiar with. And mm-hmm. I find that there's a lot of um, some people who view it more as like, how many tweets can you do? How many uh, Google reviews do you have? Um, like that sort of thing that is a, as far as that whole like longevity of practice thing is in my opinion, a bit time consuming and not as fun as going out building friendships and then almost in, you know, a tangential benefit and like a small benefit really of those friendships is the fact that you then have people who like are referring you work and spreading the good name. Exactly. We've, we've talked so much actually on this podcast about like the nature of the BC bar in particular in immigration, because I don't think any of us have any real exposure to the other provinces and what the, what the situation around collegiality is like in those places. But I know that from the very beginning of my career, I had this sense that I had like a whole team behind me and that was my colleagues in the immigration bar. And that it meant that like, you know, the first time I ever appeared in federal court, I remember I called Doug Cannon and Chris Elgin because I was at the time in the not-for-profit sector. I was on my own. And, and Chris was like, hey, come on in and I'll sit with you and read your pleadings and I will give you some comments. And I was not looked at. I mean, of course, I was working not for profit, but I don't think it had anything to do with that. That was something Chris did because he believed in the area of practice. He believed I was doing a service to a client. He believed in what we were all trying to, you know, to achieve as a collective group. Um, even just, you know, last week, um, I was talking to San Hyman about uh, a Nexus appeal case, and he just up and anonymizes a full submission and sends it to me just to use. And I just feel like it's not about competitiveness in our bar. It's about like, we're all trying to do the same thing for people who deserve good help and good advice. And like, you know, whatever I can do to support you. And those those types of relationships, like Steve says, it's not about the whining and dining or the sending nice fruit baskets. It's about like a true like belief yeah. and supporting I mean, one another. Someone who um, due to an issue is basically locked out of their firm on an hour's notice. And uh, Peter Larley made sure that that person was able to basically practice out of one of our boardrooms for two weeks until they found their feet. Mm. Like the collegiality and just that nice spirit is 
I, I hope it's the same across the country, but like, I, have, <laughs> I have no real knowledge of what uh, goes on outside of BC. Yeah, I don't know that. Um, I'm sure there are lots of areas of law where you have the same sort of collegiality. Certainly in criminal law, in, in uh-huh. litigation. Whenever I called up a, a lawyer about a, a problem I didn't know anything about, they were more than generous in giving advice and you know saying here's what you do or here's what you avoid. Um, you think uh-huh. it's the, a the difference real- between an hourly billable hour practice versus the flat fees? Because sometimes when I call friends who work at firms that have billable hour targets, the first 10 seconds of the phone call is usually them just quickly writing down, okay, 10-10, stopped uh, doing work to talk to Steve. And I'm like, oh, my yeah. God. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Did you find the practice varied at all government to government, like political party in power to political party in power? Or was it more just underlying technological shifts that kind of made the difference? I suppose the liberals on the whole had a more generous view toward immigration. Um, Certainly in the later Harper years, I thought things got a little cranky. Um, A little cranky? (laughs) (laughs) The the actual uh, practice by immigration officers when they had discretion was sort of interesting. They used to have um, policy manuals, you know, and you order these things, the great binders of, of uh, all the policy manuals. And if the, if the policy manual supported you, you'd go to the officer and say, well, here's what it says. And they say, well, that's just the joke book. But if they wanted to turn you down in their policy, <laughs> it helped you. They would say, no, this is the Bible. So... <laughs> <laughs> but they could actually make that sort of distinction. And have you followed it during COVID at all? I like kept up with kind of what's going on in the practice. I'm sure you get calls. Am I allowed into the country? Is the border closed? <laughs> That's right. Like... I, I make a real effort to pass those on <laughs> <laughs> to those who are licensed to practice law. Yeah. Which the interesting thing about uh, being retired. Uh <laughs> You're not allowed to give advice. Yeah, <laughs> well, not. give advice, but you can't do it for a week. Yeah, yeah. No, it. Um, like, I mean, it's it's tough with COVID. But how have you enjoyed retirement so far? Like, were you like Josh said? There was uh, Josh Wasson in the last episode said there was a winding down of all social hmm. media accounts. He checks his email <laughs> once a week. Um, that would have been on. really easy for Dennis to do. He didn't have any social media to wind down. He was like, what's this Facebook thing? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I like like answering Dennis's questions for him, but please. (laughs) No, it's uh, the transition was done over, deliberately done over a a period of time. Uh, So I sort of reduced the amount of cases I was doing. And and, uh, that I think was very helpful. I think those that try to retire all at once may, may find it much more difficult. Mm-hmm. Mm. But when you stopped coming into the office at all, and we, when you stopped having any cases, did you need to, that you needed to respond to, was it like, was it a big jolt for you or um, it was like an uh, easy uh, transition? I don't think it was a big 
jolt, but it was in some ways a little disappointing that, you know, that nobody wants me. I think it was a, a good way to transition. Yeah. Uh, it's been such an important part of your life for such a long time. Yes, it's yeah. probably hard to say goodbye to. Yeah. Um, and the, there are some things that uh, that sort of take over, like like joining the, the uh, uh, Royal Canadian Marine Search and Rescue. That was good. Um, and that provided a whole different skill set. Mm -hmm. uh, get your mind on uh which was a relief from the stuff you were dealing with during the day in the office uh, mm. so that uh, constantly learning i think is good so looking at things like master class or whatever and, and it's amazing what you can learn mm. master class is in master class yeah what's master class Oh, uh, my daughter got it for me, subscription to uh, all of these wonderful people talking about all sorts of different topics, whether it's cooking or uh, there's some great cooking stuff by Thomas Keller, who has the French laundry down in Napa Valley, or an FBI hostage negotiator, or uh, economists or presidential historians. Um, yeah. And a, it's a very, very well done uh, now sort of did you have similar side interests um, when you were starting out? Because I can hear some people saying, well, that's all well and great that, you know, as the managing partner of a law firm, he found time, but I'm just starting out. I don't have time to, you know, have side interests. I have to be hustling. I have to be building my practice. Mm. No, because again, I don't think my focus was on making a lot of money. Yeah. For reason, you know, when I st first started the practice, you'd also de depend a lot on legal aid. Um, we had the office down in Gastown where we had a, I had to put in a Franklin stove to, to keep the place warm, chop wood in the back room. We had a ping pong table. And, you know, yeah. In those days, it was a lot more fun to practice, I think, um, because uh, particularly amongst the criminal bar, it would, you know, people would go out for lunch have a drink at lunch uh, they would uh, the parties were fantastic <laughs> so um, it was sort of a different thing I mean I, I think that with people trying to get into the immigration area there are very different types of experiences that they might have they might article at a small boutique firm or they might end up going into a big um, like one of the big four, like one of the firms that's like that's like um, uh, off offshoot of one of the big accounting firms, yep. or they might be in it. And so I think that the the nature of what the junior practice will be quite different depending on which ones of, which one of those things you do. Um, but in terms of like billable targets, like and all that kind of stuff. And I think um, you know I imagine that that would be there's a lot of um, disparity between the the types of what a like the, the differences between what a junior practice would look like in the immigration field, depending on what type of setting you go into. And I, I know my personality would not have worked well in a big firm where I had billable targets. And yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, we were just developing immigration law in those days. And um, so there, there weren't the big four or whatever. You know. 
Yeah. But now it's, it's quite a different, it, it is an area of practice and people can choose to go into it as an area of practice rather than grow into it. One thing that I've been thinking about quite a lot lately is that um, whenever I speak to young lawyers who are interested in the immigration field, you know, there are there are positions, article positions for, um, you know, for for young lawyers wanting to get into the immigration field and not in a big four kind of environment. Um, but I think the other part um, of the other possibility is that there's nothing once somebody's called to the bar to stop them from just setting up an immigration practice. And um, I can't remember, Steve, what your what your art like where you articled. Article the BLG. Okay, I forgot about that. I don't think we talked about that on any of the other podcasts. And you no, were doing nothing to do with immigration, I presume, or were you? Nothing to do with immigration. I was primarily working with a tax litigator who left halfway through my articles to join a different okay. firm and didn't take me with him. But uh, in representing his practice at the time was um, had a lot of Asian restaurants as clients and they um, some of the owners had peripheral or staff had peripheral immigration issues that I would look into right and he knew that I was going to be uh, leaving BLG um, and almost as a throwaway said why don't you look at the immigration firms which wow. is what I did. Yeah. And that's what you did. And you went directly to Larley after that? Yeah. So about okay. three or four months into my, like I realized really early on that I wasn't going to stay or apply for hire back or any of that stuff. Yeah. And I hand dropped off. Uh, I hand dropped off resumes. I went to Lexpert and looked at the top firms and hand dropped off resumes. And, and you became uh, a partner how many years later at, uh, at Larley? Uh, so I became a partner about five years later. I never applied to be a partner or anything. They just, yeah. I came back from a trip to Ethiopia, uh, back when I would just do three week trips without any reception. And they, uh, just pulled me in and said, uh, that they wanted me to join the partnership. Um, yeah, yeah it was. And, but actually and that person's, I was chatting about this with someone over the weekend that tax lawyers probably throw away comment of you should look into immigration completely set my life on a different trajectory. And there were two firms that I applied to. Um, I got job offers from a few and there were two firms that never called me back. One of which was McRae immigration. Uh, I I saw that one coming a mile. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. But it was still worth the walk because you guys used to be down at the beach at beach Avenue. Hilarious. Yeah. 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 But I mean, all of this goes to the point that I was wanting to raise, which <laughs> is that. Made, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, is that like, there's a, something that I always think about for people that don't want to do a big four kind of practice is that there's a kind of entrepreneurial component to being an immigration practitioner that I think makes it slightly unique. Like it's very, um, like I always say to students that are like, okay, well now I'm articling, but I don't want to do this. I want to be in immigration law. I'm like, so what stops you from just hanging up a shingle and practicing? You'll have lots of support from other lawyers and you can, I mean, cause I kind of made it up as I went along when I joined West coast, you know, like I, I was on my own. And so it's like, but I think that if that notion horrifies you, 
then it's just kind of like it does say something about what type of career you may wish to have because I think that there's something about like um, and I don't know if I'm just being sort of like I have blinders on because this is what I've always practiced but there's something about um, managing an immigration practice that does require like a lot of you know practice management skills and kind of like a decisiveness and a lack of fear and ability to kind of like jump in and be like okay here's my cases I don't know what I'm doing at all so let me figure this out and I can you know read these cases or I can look at other situations with, that have been decided on similar lines like you have to be like a real kind of like not intimidated by it like you need to be sort of I think interested and challenged and intrigued by that kind of adventure as opposed to like intimidated by it um I don't know I don't know if you guys agree with as I agree completely and I would just add on that that I think law school from the moment you get in and it may not be the case anymore almost breeds and like if people have an insecurity about uh where they're going to work as like they have the seeds of that insecurity, the law school process just adds water to it. Because as soon as you join, um, there's almost no career development guide, at least when I went through it, for criminal law, immigration. It was yeah. all the big corporate law firms um, and OC, you know, on-campus interviews, getting hired at a big corporate firm. And then when you're in that big corporate firm, it's, will you be hired back? And then when you're there, you see people working super long hours for huge companies. And there's this, you know, continual push that everything does into that uh, system and very little, like, obviously they don't teach entrepreneurship. There's no sense that people get exposed to of like, here are other ways to, um, you know, make money, practice law. There's, you do the cases and you study cases of criminal defense, obviously, but there's no there isn't really a system designed to get a job in criminal defense. And instead the message from the law of school admin is all OCIs, big firm interviews. Um, I think it just breeds an insecurity. I agree. I found that one of the best things that happened in my career is getting a wonderful set of articles with one of the excellent smaller firms in Vancouver, Oak Edwards and Kenny. Um, and I guess they've been, 15 lawyers at that time. Um, but a principle that really took an interest in making sure that you got a broad experience in different areas. John Buck was uh, really very conscious of making a good set of articles. Huh. Um, so that makes you know, sense. So that although you had to keep track of your time, he would say, here, do this, uh, this opinion letter. And, you know, you'd present it to him and he said, here, do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again. Yeah. yeah. Got it the way he liked it. Um, and not worry about having to build a client for that. Yeah. Uh, you can't expect not- to earn money on an article student. That's kind of not the purpose no. at all. It's just part of your education. Yeah. yeah. So that's for me in terms of being able to go into uh, practice on my own. Uh, yeah. That said, like, I don't think many people can expect that type of an article these days. I think it is hard and getting good article positions um, is challenging. And I 100% agree with what Steve said, that it that it's, it's kind of beat out of you. Innovation and independence is beat out of you at law school in this, in this era. That was my yeah. experience as well. So that when I, I mean, I got hired by a big firm as well. It wasn't a big one. Anyways, it doesn't matter. But um, I wouldn't say that my 
article experience was so rich, but at the same time, I knew fairly early on that this isn't what I wanted to do. And so when they came around and said, are you looking to a, for a higher back? I said, no. Um, and with no real sense of what that meant for me, which I think law school teaches you is just a bad thing to do. <laughs> they teach you that you're supposed to go to a big firm and practice there for a bunch of years and then, you know, develop a skill. But I'm very grateful for the way that I did it. My firm that I articled at, they gave me some interesting things to do. They let me run small claims files and that was good, but um, it was Miller Thompson where I articled. And so, you know, I got a lot out of that, but it was mostly that I just needed to get called to the bar. And mm -hmm. I got that kind of mentorship from you, Dennis, where it was just like, okay, so I just trust that, you know, I mean, I, 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 I practiced for nine years at the at the um, West Coast Domestic Workers Association. So I kind of like, I knew what I was doing in that realm but it's just kind of like finding a firm where you can practice, where they'll kind of just let you be you and um, run your practice. Um, and they just trust and respect that you're going to do good work and you get to grow to the size of your flower pot, um, I think is really a different, it's a perspective. And when they talk about, you know, what's a good fit within your firm, I, I used to cringe at that sound, but now I really understand what they mean is that the fit for me was that I was going to be allowed to kind of like spread my wings and discover what practicing meant for me and that it wasn't going to look the same as everybody else, but it was going to be mine to shape and grow um, in the way that was going to work best for me and for my clients. And you didn't micromanage and say, you know, what's your target and how many cases and da, 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 you know, and that just gave me the space to like grow into who I am. But I knew that you had the right attitude that I wanted to see in a lawyer. Um, it wasn't self-interest, it was interest in a much broader social approach to what you were going to end up doing. So I had trust that you were more than capable of doing that and, and uh, making it. The, the financial success stuff is, uh, wasn't what drove you into that practice. You took that same attitude when you hired corporate solicitors. And so it wasn't that there was like, even within your firm, it wasn't that it was a one size fits all, you know, you hired corporate solicitors and let them do their thing their way and just gave them the hands off approach. Like, I respect that what you're going to do, you're going to do well, even if it was totally different from your own practice, you know, and I think that that also, as long as there was that shared mandate to serve the client the best of your ability at all times and not just grind them out, that was kind of, that was the recipe. I think it was also important to hire women. Hmm. Um, I never had any fear of that at all hmm. you know, because you know, it's a, <laughs> you access to another 50% of the bar um, yeah. who are going to bring some, some perhaps some different views and maybe a baby into the office or oh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> True. Um, I heard a lot of babies in this office yeah. and dogs. Yeah, that's been, uh, everyone at work keeps asking, when am I bringing the babies in? And it's, as soon as it's, as uh, soon as we're out of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, Dennis had some very interesting hiring policies in terms of like, if you uh, some of them I probably shouldn't mention on the podcast because uh, it's like if you can't if you can't smoke pot I have no interest in you. That's one that I will share. For example, that if you were that straight, and this was before, of course, pot was legalized in in the, in the province of British Columbia. But if you can't, you know, shake it off and just like you know, I just have a little bit of suspicion. You know? <laughs> so, did you ask that during the interviews? 
I think he could just sense it. <laughs> what if you came in? What if they came in smelling like pot? <laughs> there are limits, Steve. Come on. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, that's funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, yeah, hiring is one of the toughest. Uh, oh. The HR side is like. Oh my goodness. Did you have um, like? where did you pick up the skills in running your own business? Like, was it something you just picked up along the way or you were briefly partnered oh. with someone else? Did he uh, pick it up along the way? I don't know that I ever. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a morphing process rather than a management. <laughs> um, yeah. And if you've got good people around you, that they don't need a lot of management. Hmm. Yeah. But Dennis was also very open about like, Am I doing this right? What do you guys think? No, Dennis, we don't we don't agree. He was like, okay, then you do that. <laughs> you hire the new people. That's right. <laughs> I concede. I'm not good at this. <laughs> he didn't have a lot of ego in that in that no. realm. If somebody else could do it better, he had no ego getting in the way in terms of, well, I'm the managing partner. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, I think that's like, and I mean, I, I'm pretty sure both of our firms are the same in that like. There'd be no resistance from a partner to like a paralegal or a receptionist who's been on the job for one week walking in going, you know, the way you do this here really doesn't make any sense. And here's how you can do it better. I feel like we have that every hour and it's always, yeah, like it's, um, which, yeah. Yeah, for sure. But it is, I think one of the biggest challenges with HR from my perspective is how to kind of... I mean, there's a lot about practicing that is about like dealing with self-confidence and dealing with, you know, um, decisiveness and, and it's sort of um, setting uh, an environment where people can uh, can really cap, like can leverage their own, like, I don't know, because I think, um, I don't know, when I see working with younger lawyers, it's there's this moment where you can see whether it's going to it's going to stick, whether they're going to be able to get it and run with it. Um, but you don't really know until you're pretty, like, I think at least for the first year of practice, it's really anybody's guess as to whether or not you're really going to be able to make a go of it. And I don't know if you two agree, but to me, it's like, I think the person, even themselves, there's no way for them to really credibly know whether this is going to be the right field for them or whether or not it's just not. And I think, um, I, you know, I think that that, especially when you're working with with lawyers that are article students or that are young associates, I think that 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 is a real challenge from an HR standpoint. Yeah, Specialize yeah. in one narrow area of law too early in your career, I think, is a mistake. Hmm. Broad exposure, you, you become a better lawyer because of it. Yes. Um, so whatever, whether it's immigration or some other sphere that you're working in you're going to be able to provide better advice to clients. I kind of, I I typically like when people ask, should I article at a immigration law firm? I typically tell people that if they can article at a big firm to do it kind of, so at least there's that exposure to different areas and they don't wonder what if, um, yeah. Or at least if they article at an at a boutique firm in one specific area, that they remain open to the fact that like everything is not going to fall apart if they're like actually like 
I see a lot of lawyers because of my particular focus of practice who like, I want to be a refugee lawyer or I want to work in admissibility. And then they start doing it and they literally are like suffering panic attacks every night and their yeah. politics are so important to them that they want to do this because they're emotionally behind it. They're politically behind it. But if in actual practice, the experience of talking to highly traumatized clients every day um, become like you don't know until you're doing it in a way because law school really does not train you for that. Um, that you know you have to be a bit loose with yourself about it, and that after after that first year, you find that it's just not the right fit to just give yourself a break and be like, you know what, I, I love the idea of you know enforcement litigation or being a refugee um, lawyer, but. Um, in the end of the day, this doesn't mesh with my personality or my particular skill set, and you move on, you know, and the world is not going to come crashing down no matter what they tell you at law school. Like, you can move. Do <laughs> you think limiting yourself to an immigration practice uh, reduces the amount of fun that you can have with cases? Um, hmm. No, there, when I first started, there were things that, you know, it was... It, do things that were sort of a little off the wall, but tended to work. I remember when I worked for legal aid in Westminster, the, the um, Sears would sue uh, people for debts after they had gone bankrupt. The bankruptcy laws provided the goods supplied as necessaries of life were exempt from the bankruptcy and the creditor could go after them still. So Sears would claim everything that they sold at Sears was a necessity of life. So I had these poor clients come in with these command letters from um, Ian McKenzie, who was the debt collector for Sears. Um, and uh, they'd be terrified of this. And so I, we decided to sort of take this on and sort of put an end to it. So, <laughs> so one of the ways of doing it was to I got a, a, a subpoena and I delivered it personally to the vice president of Sears to appear in court on a small claims action. <laughs> Promptly, those cases went away. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a really good question, Dennis. And I think, um, I think, you know, I think that when you have a broader, like when you've experienced a broader mandate, you realize you, you start being so precious about, you know, these are the rules and this is the way things are done. And this is what my colleagues tell me is the right way of doing things. And I think, you know, you sort of, you, you do that, that sort of outside of the box thinking. Um, at the same time, I don't think it's the only way to do it. And I would say when people ask me about being CBA chair, I would say being CBA chair for me was less about, you know, developing relationships with government officials and da da da. It taught me things about diplomacy and about like, you know, um, not just diplomacy, like it just taught me like, okay, you have a problem. Well, here's an innovative way to resolve it. And, you know, what do you do when you're trying to organize a conference and, you know, it's for 500 people and all of a sudden there's a pandemic and you can't have it anymore. Like you have to pivot. And I'm not talking, I'm not on the CBA now, thank goodness. But um, for the people who are on the executive, they had to figure out how to make that happen. And, um, you know, if they, let's say, were somebody who had gone straight from undergrad to law school into an immigration firm, do they know how to, you know, 
to organize an event for that many people. And I think that those skills aren't directly transferable to being in an immigration practice, but just being able to think nimbly, Mm -hmm. I think is vital. And just being able to be like, okay, so now, you know, rather than being like, oh, you know, all everything is lost, you could just kind of like, okay, let's start back from first principles. We have this, um, you know, we have this thing we want to do. We have these platforms, like how are we going to go about it? And I think, yeah, taking one to two things, or at least a few things, I don't know if it's a year or a month, but outside your general comfort zone, Mm -hmm. so that if your main practice area is impacted, you can pivot to something else without being complete deer in the headlights, staring at the wall going, what am I going to do? Even with immigration, like it's, I think one of the lessons of the, call it the Harper years and the pandemic has been like within immigration, if you're too specialized, um, a change in immigration policy can completely cause you to freeze. So like if you were doing only refugee law during the Harper years, I mean, we saw the bar shrink um, because the amount of Some of our best practitioners left the practice altogether. And during like COVID, um, it's, you know, people who just did enforcement work, uh, there was none basically from like March to August. Mm-hmm. If you just did study permits for say Chinese students, there was none from January to August of 2020. Um, whereas if you had a broad enough basis, there was, and you were constantly taking on and trying to not be too narrow, you were able to land on two feet sort of. For sure. And even if you are a litigator and you're comfortable in front of, you know, the IR, you know, the the immigration division or the IAD, and then all of a sudden you get presented with a war crimes case where you're going to have to, you know, like, OK, take these skills that I know and like break down all of those walls and think bigger. You know, you're not timid. You've tested yourself. You've tested your mettle in terms of your ability to kind of um, expand what you know to things that you don't. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Be nimble uh, and be open, open to new challenges. Mm. Got to make it interesting. Agreed. And the other thing about uh, that, I always thought when you're coming up with with these day to day problems dealing with the processing of immigration, is that too many lawyers think that if that's what the government's telling them, that's what it is rather than stopping, taking a breath, going back and reading the act, reading the regulations. For sure. Whether that's in fact true or not, and be willing to challenge it. A hundred percent. And that's when my dentist voice comes in, like, who who has the power to do this and why? (laughs) (laughs) What's the enabling statute? That's how dentists would always approach the problem, you know? And it's like, really go back to the very beginning. And I think that in terms of like when COVID began, Sorry, I want to, I'm sort of jumping all over the place, but when we were talking about CBA stuff, like, for example, when the department came to us and was like, hey, we're thinking about doing this express entry system, and we were all like, no, 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 that's never going to work, and, you know, like, everyone lost their minds being like, you know, this is going to be the absolute downfall of everything. There are certainly things that got lost, as Dennis has mentioned, you know, that in-person, that personal touch, you know, thing. But at the same time, it kind of allowed me to stop being hysterical, being involved with the CBA, you know, because it's like, yes, I know I got a million because I was um, the chair when that stuff um, started percolating. You know, you get a million emails from a million lawyers being like, 
this will be the death of immigration law. Um, we'll no longer have a practice, you know? And that was the kind of dramatic response I was getting from across the country. And I think to just like, okay, just calm down and look at it and like sort of be able to like listen to what the policymakers are trying to accomplish, to have some receptivity to the fact that like, well, yeah, they actually need a more efficient way of doing this if we don't want 300,000 federal skilled workers in a backlog that they're then gonna cut off, you know? So just being more receptive to that nuance and uh, yeah, I, I, I forget where I was going with it. But again, I think that just, uh, oh, I remember it was about when COVID began and we were thinking like, I think I definitely had a moment of panic, like, okay, well now we can't practice anymore, like everything. And then, I mean, how quickly we shifted to like, okay, well now we're doing everything online and the hearings can happen online. And again, like it was actually pretty short that we figured out how to fix it. But, you know, we're so prone to like panicking and freaking out and getting catastrophizing things and uh, having that breadth of experience and some life experience as well just um, just helps you realize that all of these things are manageable as long as you can sit down and calmly think it through and figure out like, okay, what's the enabling statute? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. in, a, uh, in a week, like, going back uh, to how your practice was structured, like in a week, say at work, what percent of your time would you say was firm management versus say corporate versus enforcement slash litigation? Do I get to give an opinion on this? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. So now we're on the same page. Yeah. Go on. And most of it was immigration processing, family cases, that sort of thing, uh, independent app, uh, skilled worker applications, some work permits, although I tried to get rid of the work permits to a few other lawyers if I could. Mind numbing of trying to get, unless it was something interesting. Yeah. Uh, did you find but, that uh, your practice, because I found like some people have said that, you know, they wanted to do that. But once the corporate, you know, a corporation coming in, all of a sudden the volume and the needs of that one client, yeah. like one corporation bringing in, say, dozens of foreign workers mm-hmm. is going to be need more time than, you know, yes. like just take yeah. up time. And but certainly and it, it's a lucrative area of law. It's good. And then if you do a good job for that corporate client and they're expanding, you know, that area of your practice is going to continue to expand, um, but always be very, very careful to not be dependent on one client. For sure. But also uh, there's that, like, the, the you know, the golden handcuffs expression. Like, mm-hmm. I know that Dennis had, like, an allergic reaction to LMIA applications, especially when they became, like, <laughs> really just an exercise in completeness screening and bureaucracy, yeah. right? And so you can get into a thing where you're doing LMIA-based work permits and more will come, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like... Um, if you do it and you do a decent job, more will come. So you can end up railroading yourself into a career that you hate. So you have to be very careful about like, yes, there's money here, but if I hate this, you have to be quite deliberate about setting it up because if you're doing good work, whatever you do, you'll get more of. Yeah, that's right. That's a very good line. If you do good work, whatever you do, you'll get more of. 
Yeah, exactly. And sometimes um, I, I definitely found that for me when we bought the firm from Dennis like five years ago, I went into the corporate area just because we needed to, you know, we were trying to finance stuff and all this kind of thing. Next thing I knew, I was a corporate solicitor. And I'm like, when did this happen? You know, because like, you know, you don't even you don't even try. And all of a sudden, um, you're just like, that's all of the way and you can barely keep up with it. At least that's the experience here in BC. I don't know um, if it's always the case, but um, I just have always found that there was way more work out there than you have the capacity to do. And if you're always doing like top, top shelf work, um, you know, for every one case you do, you'll get 10 new ones. And, uh, you know, you can find yourself running a corporate solicitor practice when that was never your plan. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is what do you think the effect of consultants has had? I know that we had some concerns that maybe consultants were going to take over the practice and lawyers wouldn't be able to do it. But in my experience, that has not happened at all. Um, in fact, consultants often create work for us. Ton, unfortunately. Or inadvertently. Yeah. Uh, no, and, it's a, uh, and it's an area where I, uh, kind of part ways with the CBA national section anyways on is I don't have the the same anti-consultant drive. Um, I think that the demand to immigrate, well, so I posted something earlier, which is that combined lawyers and consultants uh, represent probably between 15 to 20% of applications in total. And wow. yeah, it's, it's small. I mean, when you look at that, like there's a huge amount of ETAs that I don't know if those are included in the stats or not. And exactly what, when they say the number of temporary residence applications, which balloons, if like, you know, postgraduate work permits, ETA. So it may be like on ETA is just the authorization higher. to travel for our listeners. So it's yeah. like, you know, it's like that pre-screening thing you can do on your phone at the airport. So, yeah. So like, yeah. I mean, logically, you know, if there were no consultants, then there would be a lot more work going towards immigration lawyers and presumably possibly there would be a lot more immigration lawyers but I feel like there's enough work for everyone. And a lot of the, I mean, you can divide kind of the consultants into two to three groups. There's, um, you know, the ones that really shouldn't be practicing, which is some percentage. There's also consultants that specialize, hyper-specialize in a specific country um, that you, I don't think you would see in a lawyer, for example, somebody exclusively focusing on a certain, you know, East African country, largely also because of language issues that your consultant might, or like a lawyer who would hyper-focus on the Chinese study permit applications, which a lot of consultants do. And then there's the consultants who are as broad as lawyers and some of whom, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I haven't seen the stats on what success rates are, but I would guess that they're similar. Yeah, I'm with you, Steve. I've never been um, philosophically opposed to to consultants across the board. Um, I think that there are they're different. They're different professions for sure. Um, from one 
perspective, I, I'm motivated by the access to justice element in the sense that like, if the costs were actually lower of hiring a consultant, then I feel like, you know, having an option that was getting advice and, um, you know, it being lower cost than a lawyer, then I think I'm all for that. Um, I think that my, my concern is about quality of service as opposed to who is actually doing that service. And I would never come at this from a competitiveness perspective. I feel like there's, um, you know, those, those numbers surprise me in a way, the percentage of um, clients that are represented, they surprise me in a way, but they also don't surprise me. I've always had a sense that we're standing behind a tidal wave of people who have these needs. And so again, it's always to me about like providing the best quality work and all that kind of stuff. I would just say that, you know, anecdotally, a large component of my litigation practice comes from people who have worked with a consultant and made very clear misrepresentations on applications and being advised that that was an approach that was a viable approach to make. I don't know if that's an issue because they're a consultant or if that's an issue because they're just unethical because there are lots of lawyers who have been disbarred for similar types of things, especially in, some, yeah. in, in recent years. So, I mean, I think that I have a very strong compulsion towards an ethical practice, but um, you know, if somebody, I, I mean, I've certainly worked with consultants and consultants, you know, referring work and um, you know we can collaborate where I'll do this and you know you do litigation if there's any required but I know they're practicing in a very vigilant um, in a vigilant way and they narrow the area of their practice and they're doing good work um, so when you say that there are different types of consultants there certainly are and many consultants work within law firms and again mm -hmm. I you know it's like sort of and many are foreign trained lawyers who just didn't want to go through the mm -hmm. go back to law school uh, when they really just want to practice in one area. Yeah. Um, so no, I don't, uh, I don't know how the new changes and the new regulator will change things. Yeah. Um, but I that will is say a that they point, don't though. practice in fear of their regulator the way they practice in fear of the law society. Agreed, Steve. And that is a major problem. And it's yeah. always been a major problem. I think and it's a I bigger problem like... for consultants, like the ethical consultants yes. I feel bad for. Me too. Um, but I mean, the lawyers that are doing this get disbarred almost immediately. Um, I have cases where repeatedly there has been um, unethical work and there are criminal or CBSA proceedings against that person, about against that consultant before the regulator even sort of like pops open one eye, you know? And so that is a problem. Um, that is an access to justice issue, um, you know? And I think that if they were a functioning regulator, um, then that might be a different story. My, my experience with looking at consultants' contracts is um, in terms of access to justice. The ones that I've seen, the, the prices that they charge are far in excess of anything I've ever seen a lawyer charge. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, I've seen it both you know, ways. Yeah. Or, or something well. ridiculously low because they're just not going to do any work. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I, it's, uh, I think the other trend, I mean, I think the big, if like the other trend going forwards um, and Deanna, we've talked about this is how possibly due to AI, possibly due to volume, it seems like the amount of attention being given to individual files at IRCC is really diminishing such that when you see GCMS now for a TRV refusal, it's very rare I would be surprised if half the times it 
even mentions anything specific about the applicant instead of yeah. three boilerplate sentences. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I'm not sure if this is supposed to be public knowledge, but the department has consulted the CBA about how to improve that. And so um, I know that I am participating in a meeting this coming week. Uh, or I think it's this week actually, to provide feedback about that. And so um, I, I think that there is some, um, there is some recognition that there's deficiency in the issue of reasons. Um, my sort of larger concern is that there are systemic issues in processing that we have talked about in great <laughs> uh, volume on this podcast about, you know, some of the systemic issues that show up, particularly at certain visa offices, that it doesn't matter whether or not that issue gets judicially reviewed, you know, two dozen times and there's settlements every time, or even if there's decisions that are rendered that actually set the law very, very straight. That doesn't seem to be changing the trending of those decisions out of those visa office. So there needs to be some like meaningful integration of those insights that are coming out of the litigation. And I don't feel that that is happening at all, or if it is happening, it's not ha happening satisfactorily. Yeah. Dennis, when you were practicing earlier, because my theory, like, I mean, they can do these meetings with CBA about how to make reasons better, but as long as the demand so exceeds the number of officers that there's just no time to actually read all the pages in a TRV application, I don't see how it will ultimately like, I think that's just the main issue is the sheer number of applications that has to be processed. Was demand, like, have you seen the, the, the demand for immigration rise since 74? Well, the, the, and the quality of the decisions possibly being impacted just by the sheer volume that has to be done? I'm not sure if, over that particular period of time, the volumes affected the quality. I think that, that certainly when you started, when we started, it was a lot of individual decision-making by officers who would actually look at things and bring their own personal biases. Um, and there was systemic racism and, and selection. Uh, for example, there were two offices for the whole of Africa, immigration offices for the whole of Africa and four in the UK. Mm -hmm. So that sort of drove the, <laughs> drove the bulk of immigration. Wow. Um, but if you look at, at some of the refusals on TRVs, there's obviously an internal policy within that office, whichever office it might be, saying, look, anybody who fits within this category, just don't approve them. Yeah, And instead of publishing that so that people know, uh, we're making all these very elaborate art, uh, applications for TRVs with so many documents in them, you know, become quite irrelevant to uh, the application. And then the federal court goes and, and says, well, you didn't put this in. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. yeah. Nothing to do with, with the decision. Yeah. It starts to get very esoteric where we're talking those kinds of like, how many angels can you get to dance on the head of a pin? But like, yeah. really, there is, I, I don't, I agree with you, Dennis, that it sometimes feel like we're not getting at the underlying systemic issues. And that's my current frustration with, with federal court litigation is um, I, I don't feel like we're touching the, the underlying issues. Well, I feel like part of the issue with federal court is the judges don't see the decisions that are consented to. And so they don't see, they don't see the most egregious stuff. And 
I think it influences how they view what they do see as whether as, as they're getting a miss and not the accurate impression of the bulk of what's going on. Yeah. At the same time, it just, um, it's hard to rationalize telling, I, I mean, to get a client to continue with a federal court proceeding when they've been offered a consent. Um, you know, it's like, uh, the cost is being borne by the litigants so completely. And the fact that there's so much reluctance by the federal court to make costs orders. And even if they did issue cost orders, those cost orders are in the federal court tariff, which is by no means gonna cover the actual cost. And further, that the, the majority of these decisions, the most negative ones, the ones that are getting at some of these systemic issues are people that are impecunious. So like, um, you know, you're dealing with, um, you know, uh, with a group that are not really often potential litigants. And so I, I think that these why, that's why so many of these issues just get left untouched. Um, you know, and as you say, Steve, like, you, you know, when a settlement gets offered, like that's the thing to do. And the only reason that I think some of these are now kind of continuing even beyond a settlement offer is because they've gone three times back to the visa office with just different articulations of the same refusal or, you know, um, and so, so again, but I think that there needs to be some kind of equalizing because the state has, you know, massive resources as compared to these lay litigants who, um, you know, who the ones that are most adversely affected by these policies are ones yeah. that really can't afford to finance litigation. Well, an example <laughs> would be like when we talked about with Raj that, um, you know, through ATIP, we discovered that the Canadian High Commission in New Delhi has adopted this misrepresentation uh, as a deterrence policy. And in the ATIPs that, you know, we have emails saying, we acknowledge, you know, there's going to be more litigation around this and we'll probably lose some, but it's worth it to just send a message, quote, send a message to the community and quote, the judge, unless someone includes that ATIP when they're reviewing a misrepresentation case, isn't going to know that the underlying policy behind this is, yeah, we'll probably lose some litigation, but we want to just send a message. And if yeah. they knew that, I feel like the, like... That's so central to why that decision was made and a misrepresentation finding was made, but the individual judge reviewing the decision will never see it. But also in order to get that smoking gun, like you have to know what you're A-tipping, you know, like when all of a sudden, you know, like you go in trotting along, everything's fine, fine, fine. And all of a sudden you end up under a landslide of refused caregiver work permits, you know, like what are you asking for when you're trying to find that smoking gun somewhere in a policy manual or on a post-it note as Steve's infamous case goes <laughs> to know that there's some kind of like a decision, like that there's a changed policy, not a policy written and published on the internet, but like, you know, an internal agreement yeah. that somebody who doesn't meet some other unspoken requirement is going to be a refusal. But then it's the post-it note. And I've like <laughs> brought this up. So the post-it note was, I did an A-tip on a file of mine that was in process. And for the, you know, copy of the application and any emails that the officers may have sent and all that. And yeah. we get this thing and there's a a photocopy of the generic application form, yeah. the post-it note on it that says, do not disclose via ATIP. And it listed <laughs> some concerns. 
And I wound up doing a procedural fairness response yeah. to the post-it note. It was the like yeah. <laughs> funniest thing. I mean, it was both very like eye-opening that uh, yeah. there would be a post-it note that says, here are real concerns, do not disclose the <laughs> ATIP. But it was funny to just be like procedural fairness response to post-it note. Uh-huh. Well, I think one of the big transitions was the switch in the federal court from actually listening to a case and making a decision to judicial review. And the very limited... Uh, oh, yeah. they have to make decisions and one of the things they could do to short circuit your problem Deanna, is to allow the judge to say look yep. based on the file we've seen the whole file approve it this, this application is approved sure. you don't i think just back. uh i'll be back yeah and the number of applications that i've looked i've tried to get them to issue a directed verdict from the bench at federal court that have been turned down, that they're like, no, 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 we don't want to fetter the discretion of the new officer. And, you know, there might be other facts. Maybe the job offer has gone away since the last time a decision was made. And I mean, my view, and we've talked about this on the podcast as well. My view is that Vavilov clearly stated that where, and they actually use the phrase that where there's like a merry-go-round of refused something, um, they weren't, um, you know, that that there needs to be a way for the court to be like, okay, enough of this bullshit, you know, and like, I am stopping this and I'm going to say this application is approved, but I've tried arguing that multiple times in front of the federal court. And I think that there's just a real reluctance. They're like, well, you know, we don't want to fetter the discretion. You know, we don't have, you know, our role is just to review the reasonableness of the decision. And then we send it back to the officer. And I think that um, given the proliferation of unreasonable decisions and, you know, decisions, you know, that are kind of cutting the same grooves in the soil, you know, that there needs to be a more proactive stance. And I, I'm disappointed because when I read Vavilov, that phrase was like, yes, some reason <laughs> coming in. But I, I just haven't found any traction for it yet. Yeah. And I just so I, uh, I hate to interrupt. I've got the hard mm-hmm. knock that my, as I said, that the start of the, this IT is uh, doing something <laughs> with the computer and they've just okay. knocked to say your time is up. It's okay. probably been our longest episode. Yeah, well, um, it's it's hard. I have like it was like we should call it the love-in episode between Dennis and I. So, <laughs> yeah. well, when uh, when this is all done, we should all grab uh, Dennis and I used to go to brioche once every few months. Oh yeah, so, assuming they've uh, made it through the pandemic, we should. Dennis uh, and I used to drink tequila one or two days a week. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can I do both. You. We can do we both. Can do both or all. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Okay. It's Thank great you all. catching up. I'm so Thank glad you did this. Guys, it was a lot yeah. of fun. Yes, really definitely. Fun.